Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here. We do have many of our number who are, are traveling or are, are sick, but it is an encouragement to have visitors with us. Uh, it's certainly encouraging to, to see Kathy back. We're thankful for God's answered prayers with her healing as well. If your Bibles aren't already open to Acts chapter 2, please open them there now. We're going to be focusing on this uh, passage at the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, in our time together today. It's our goal as a church uh, to be the church that Jesus built, the, the church that God desires us to be, the church that we find on the pages of our New Testament. Uh, In fact, on the uh, About Us page of our website, uh, the first thing that it says is, we are a family of Christians striving to follow the pattern of the New Testament. But what does that look like? How do we know whether or not we're living up to that goal? If somebody from the community comes into our assembly today, how will they be able to identify whether or not we are the church that they see in their Bibles. I, I want us to talk today about identifying marks of the New Testament church. Now, it's very easy when we talk about a subject like this to talk about the more outward aspects of who we are as a church, um, like our, our organization, our, our work, our, our worship, uh, even the, the name on the sign. Uh, But when we're first introduced to the church in the book of Acts, that's not exactly what's focused on. Um, The the primary focus, rather, is the inward character of the church. And so in an effort to put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis, I, I want us to focus on the inward character, the attitude, the heart of the New Testament church. And by looking at this passage here in Acts 2, I want us to consider six identifying marks um, in their attitude towards God, their attitude towards each other, and their attitude towards the world around them. And as we do that, I want us to really try to look into God's word as a mirror uh, and examine ourselves, examine the, the Eastside Church of Christ, examine ourselves individually as members of this church, whether or not we are living up to to the heart of the New Testament church. First of all, here in Acts 2, we see their attitude towards God. Um, Look with me in verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Some versions say they continued steadfastly. Uh, We see their devotion. They were fully committed, fully invested. They were all in. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to learning and growing and their understanding of God and his will. They were devoted to the fellowship, to encouraging and building up one another, supporting each other in their work for the Lord. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, to worshiping and honoring God, celebrating his goodness and grace remembering Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. They're devoted to the prayers, to cultivating a deeper and more intimate relationship with God. I I think it's easy for us to look at that and uh, focus on the the outward aspects of that and say, yes, breaking of bread, we did that today. Prayers, we did that today. 
um, the apostles' doctrine. Yes, we're, we're, we're focusing on, on teaching, on, on fellowship. But I want you to notice, it says they were devoted to those things. It's not enough that, yes, that is what we practice. Are we truly devoted to those things? Could we say that we are fully invested in those things? Because the early church, their commitment, their level of commitment was readily evident in the way that they were involved in these things. Look in verse 45. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. How were they devoted to fellowship? They they were even fully devoting their their very possessions um, to service of the the Lord's church to one another. They weren't just contributing their loose change to support uh, the church. They were selling possessions for the sole purpose of giving to the needs of the church, sacrificing what they had, lowering their own personal standards of living to support one another. We see again in verse 46, they were devoting their time. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad uh, glad and generous hearts. These were not once a week Christians. Uh, day after day, they were seeking out opportunities to spend together uh, in worship and growing in their faith and understanding of God's will. They were seeking to spend time together in and outside of the assembly. Um, They aren't just engaged in worship and fellowship out of a sense of obligation, but that is something that they are zealously and eagerly seeking to do, finding opportunities Uh, even beyond what might be expected of them to devote their time to the Lord and the building up and encouraging of one another. And we see this even later on in chapter 8 when persecution comes, when their very lives are in danger because of their devotion to the Lord. They don't waver in that devotion. They take the gospel with them wherever they go. They, They are willing to face whatever fear, whatever threat comes upon them that they might continue to serve the Lord. If we want to be what we see in the New Testament, we need to be fully invested. We need to be fully devoted to the Lord's work. In Luke chapter 14, notice what Jesus says to those who are seeking to follow him. It says here in Luke 14, starting verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He talks about counting the cost. And at the end of the section, verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus demands commitment. In fact, Jesus would rather not have followers than have uncommitted followers. He says, you cannot be my disciple unless I come first. And he states this in very strong terms. But the point is that he must come first before any family relationship, before our own personal lives and, and desires, um, before any possession, other, any other competing priority, all needs to be laid on the altar in service to him. If we want to be his disciples... If we want to be his body, then this needs to describe us. We cannot claim to be disciples if we are not fully devoted in our service to him. Are we following the pattern of the New Testament church? 
Are we fully devoted to the Lord's work and the well-being of his people? Well, look back in Acts chapter 2. In verse 43, again we see something about their attitude towards God. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Some versions say, And fear, reverential fear, came upon all the disciples. This is a a similar action to what we'll see, uh, a similar reaction to what we see in chapter 5. Uh, In verse 11, after Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead by the Lord. In chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. They have here a very real respect for the power of God and the authority that he has given to the apostles. Um, Reverence for God's power and God's authority is really essential to us giving acceptable service and worship to God. Consider Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. How? With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. If we want our worship to be acceptable to God, then it needs to be characterized by that same sense of awe and reverence for the God that we serve. Here we're reminded in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. That's that's really a reference, especially in the context of Hebrews 12, to God appearing on Mount Sinai as a consuming fire. Back in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, we see that when he came down to uh, form this covenant with his people at Mount Sinai to give them the law, he appeared as a consuming fire and there was thunder and lightning, billows of of smoke uh, and an earthquake. You know, why, why is it that God manifested himself in that way? You know, we, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago when he comes before Elijah, he doesn't manifest himself in that way. He manifests himself as a, as a still, small voice. We, we see the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. Why, why didn't he manifest himself in that way at Mount Sinai? Well, we'll look for a moment back at Exodus 20 with me. Back in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 18 through 20. Notice what God says about why he appeared in this way. Starting in verse 18 of Exodus 20, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Why did God come in that form? To teach them to give him the proper fear and reverence for him. That they might not take lightly their obedience to him, that they might not stray into sin. And we see the same thing in the New Testament church. That God, through the miracles and wonders that he's working through the apostles, through Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead for their dishonesty and disobedience, He is making it very clear the power and authority of the God that we serve. We need to learn that same lesson today as well. You know, while we can find great comfort in God's grace and mercy, and we can see pictures throughout the scripture 
uh, of God as a loving father, a, a nursing mother, a tender shepherd, a hen gathering her chicks under its wings. We need to recognize that that's the same God who appeared as a consuming fire on Mount Sinai. That's the same God who, who struck Ananias and so I were dead because of their disobedience. That God is still just as powerful, just as just, righteous, and holy as he was then. That our God is a consuming fire. And so when we think about our worship, we need to make sure that our worship is never a casual thing. We are bringing our sacrifice of praise to the throne of the creator of the universe, the ancient of days, the most high God, the great I am. That's not something that we should undertake lightly. And when we open his word and we're seeking to understand his will, we need to make sure that that's not a casual endeavor either. There is nothing more important, no more important endeavor that we can undertake than seeking to understand and obey the will of our Creator. And so if we want to be the church that we see in the New Testament, we need to have an atmosphere of reverence. Are we following the pattern of the New Testament church? Is our worship and service to God motivated by genuine reverence for His power and majesty? When we sing, when we pray, when we open His Word, is this assembly filled with an attitude and an atmosphere of reverence. But as we look at the church in Acts chapter 2, we also see some things in their attitude and relationship with one another. If you want to turn back there now to Acts chapter 2, look with me in verse 44. In verse 44, we read, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That, that word in common is actually from the same root word that we saw the word fellowship in verse 22. Um, the word, the Greek word koinonia, which means communion, fellowship, mutual sharing or participation, camaraderie. And as we see there in verse 44, this certainly holds the idea of sharing the necessities of life, um, but this physical sharing is really emblematic of a deeper spiritual sharing. They are our fellow disciples, fellow servants, fellow workers, fellow children, brothers and sisters in the family of God. And that shows in the way that they treat one another. I think about a song that we sometimes sing in our book, it's number 340, A Common Love. Uh, talking about having all things in common doesn't just mean physical things, uh, more deeply, even spiritual things. In that song, we sing a common love for each other, a common gift to the Savior, a common bond holding us to the Lord, a common strength when we're weary, a common hope for tomorrow, a common joy in the truth of God's word. When we sing that song, do we really mean it? Does that describe us and our relationship with each other? We see in Colossians 2 and verse 2, Paul urges the brethren there to be knit together in love. This idea of communion and fellowship needs to permeate every aspect of our relationship with one another. Our, our relationships need to be close-knit, so to speak. That we need to be reflecting that love and how we treat one another, how we interact with one another, even how we give to one another's needs. In John chapter 17, 
Jesus, on the night in which he's betrayed, um, actually, let's turn our Bibles over there. John chapter 17 is, has been speaking with his disciples, and at this point, uh, he prays to the Father, and he prays for these disciples, and not only for them, but for all who will come, who will believe on his name. Notice what he prays for in John 17, starting in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfect perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. One of Jesus' last prayers here on this earth, uh, one of Jesus' longest prayers uh, recorded within the Gospels, focuses on the need for his people to be united. That we be one even as he and the Father are one. That we be one in him and the Father. That our fellowship with God might translate into fellowship with one another as well. And notice uh, twice there in verse uh, 21 and then again in verse 23. He says, that the world may believe that you sent me. One of the reasons that Jesus prays for unity Um, is that it is a testament to the reality and truthfulness of the gospel. Unity reflects the character of Jesus and the Father. It's an essential mark of the New Testament church that we be striving for biblical unity. In Ephesians 4, uh, starting in verse 1, here in the book of Ephesians, Paul has been talking about our calling about the grace extended to us, the blessings extended to us in Christ. But he makes a transition here at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. How, Paul? How do we walk worthy of our calling? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He goes on to talk about how there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. If we want to walk worthy of the gospel, then we need to be striving for unity. Uh, In our attitude, an attitude of humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, an attitude of love, striving to maintain the unity of the spirit, and the bond of peace. If we are the New Testament church, then we need to reflect the fact that there is one body and one spirit. We need to reflect God's design for the fellowship of his people. If our attitudes towards each other do not promote that kind of unity and fellowship, then we're not following the spirit of Christ. We're not walking worthy of our calling. Are we following the pattern of the New Testament church? If so, then how we interact with one another is going to show a fellowship and camaraderie, a unity, a knitting together in love. We're going to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
But if you continue with me back in Acts chapter 2, in verse 45, we see that this fellowship that they had is not just some theoretical construct, uh, but it's a practical reality. In verse 45, it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They didn't just claim to love each other. Their love showed in active service, even sacrificial service to one another's needs. We see this again in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Again, that idea of communion or fellowship. Um, Here, you know, the... This is not government-regulated and administered communism uh, or socialism, but it's not the fierce, independent uh, spirit of American capitalism either. (laughs) Uh, Here, they had the attitude that what they possessed was not their own. Personal finance was not so personal. Um, Here, they're not just focused on making sure that, that they're saving up for their nice retirement and they're saving up for their next big vacation uh, and you know that, that they have all their finances in order. They're, they're in fact willing to suffer financial loss, to sacrifice of their personal finances, to, to, to lower their standard of living that they might serve one another around them. They recognize that their possessions were ultimately things that God entrusted to them in the first place. Uh, and therefore, they were to be used in his service, for the service of his people and his purposes. And they're ultimately following the example of Jesus in this. And Matthew 20 and verse 28, Jesus says, He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We see Jesus illustrating that example, maybe most powerfully, uh, certainly in the cross, but also in John chapter 13, Again, on this night in which he is betrayed, uh, Jesus sits down to to supper with his disciples. And he doesn't take a a royal robe and put it on. He divests himself. He he girds himself with a towel and takes the lowest position of service in washing the, the dusty, grimy, smelly feet of his disciples. And notice what he says about this in John 13, starting in verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Brethren, if we're disciples of Jesus... If we're following in his footsteps, that means we need to get down and start washing some feet, so to speak. We need to be willing to take the lowest position of service. We need to make sure that our devotion, as we talked about earlier from day to day, is centered around how we can serve other people and their needs. It's not about coming and saying, okay, how is this church going to serve me? Is this going to be my needs? Is this going to make me feel good and encouraged? No, the attitude of the New Testament church was, what can I do 
in service to others. It's more blessed to give than receive, Jesus said. And Jesus goes on to talk about this again later on, this very same night, John 13, verse 34 and 35. He tells his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's not a new command. It says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus shows us what true love for each other looks like. That's why this is a new command. You you should love one another as I have loved you. In context, what do you think the disciples are thinking about? My feet feel clean, uh, reminding me of what Jesus just did. And not only that, Jesus is about to illustrate that kind of love in the most magnificent way possible in the most sacrificial way possible, as he gives his very life upon the cross. Brethren, we can be going through all the outward motions of proper worship and structure and teaching, but if we don't have Jesus' love, we are not his people. Jesus says this is the most foundational aspect of what identifies us as disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to make sure that if we're following the pattern of the New Testament church, we are reflecting Jesus' love, Jesus' heart of service for one another. But as we go back to Acts chapter 2, we also see some things specifically in their relationship with the world around them as well. If you look in verse 46... It says, and day by day, attending the temple uh, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, Some versions say with gladness and sincerity or singleness of heart. As they're engaging in this devotion to the Lord, as they're engaging in this service to one another, we're told that they are doing so with, with great joy and gladness. Um that they, they were genuinely and sincere, sincerely joyful. They're not distracted with the worries and anxieties of life. They're not overcome by the hustle and bustle of life, but they have a single and sincere focus on the abundant spiritual blessings they had received and the great joy that it provided. And that was, that was evident in the way that they were engaging in all of these things and the way that they were spending time together. Uh, Their their gladness, their simplicity or sincerity of heart uh, shined forth. We see this concept in Philippians chapter 4 as Paul is instructing uh, the brethren in in Philippi. If you'll turn your Bibles with me there. Philippians chapter 4, remember Paul is writing from prison. But what does he command these brethren? Starting in verse 4 of Philippians 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. Always with thankfulness in your hearts. You have the peace that surpasses understanding. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. It doesn't matter if we're in prison. 
Doesn't matter if we are being persecuted. Doesn't matter if, if emotionally speaking, we're discouraged. Always, in every circumstance, we can choose to have joy in the Lord. To have peace and thankfulness in our hearts because of our reliance on him. And we continue to see that concept throughout the book of Acts. Uh, that those who accepted the word received it with great gladness. You see the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, after his sins are washed away, what does he do? He goes on his way rejoicing. What about the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16? After his sins are forgiven, we see that he rejoices with all of his household. What about Paul and Silas earlier in the jail as they're being persecuted, but they're singing praises to God. What about the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they're being persecuted? It says they rejoiced that they were found worthy to suffer shame for the Lord. Didn't matter what circumstances. They had joy in the fellowship that they had with God and the salvation that God provided. And that joy... That hope, that peace is a significant aspect of us shining our lights to the world around us. In fact, earlier in the same book, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted world among whom you shine as lights in the world. If we're grumbling and disputing, if our lives are not characterized by the joy that Paul's talking about in the book of Philippians, the spiritual joy and peace that we can have in Christ, uh, then we're not going to appear as lights in the world. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter commands brethren who are suffering fiery trials, as we see at the beginning of 1 Peter. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says, be ready to tell people why you have hope. Be ready when people ask you for a reason that the hope, that you have hope within you, that you can tell them why. How many of us have ever had somebody come to us and ask us for a reason that we have hope? Hopefully, uh, hopefully many of us do. If we're being the disciples that we need to be, our hope, our peace, our joy that surpasses understanding, that doesn't make sense from an earthly perspective, needs to be something that is very clear to the world around us. This is part of shining our lights, that people can see our hope, our joy. Are we following the pattern of the New Testament church? Do we find that kind of joy in our salvation? Do we have the hope and peace that God has provided in the midst of difficulty? Or have we allowed the worries and cares of this world to distract us and choke out the sincere joy and peace that the gospel provides? But in addition to that hope, ultimately we can't shine our lights without opening our mouths and telling people about the gospel, giving a reason for the hope that is within us. Notice in verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. Verse 47 says, Praising God 
and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice the first part of that. They had favor among all the people. What what does that mean? Uh, I think they, they have a favorable reputation among the community. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is going to agree with their teaching. That doesn't mean that they're not going to be persecuted. In fact, we're going to see that persecution does come. But no one could deny, ultimately, the praiseworthy character that these people possessed. They were shining their lights in that way. And the result at the end of verse 47 is that day by day, those who were being saved were being added to their number. Can you imagine, brethren, if, if day by day, the Eastside Church of Christ was, was bringing people to the Lord? That's what we need to be striving for. Day by day, to continue to have this evangelistic mindset, to shine our lights not only in our hope and our peace and our joy, but to open up our mouths and to tell people where that comes from. We need the attitude of the apostles. Look in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. It says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Some versions say we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Here, they're being persecuted. They're being thrown in jail. Their very lives are going to be threatened. They say nothing is going to stop us from telling people about Jesus, about his resurrection, about the hope that he has provided. What does it take to stop us from speaking to others about the gospel? Um, Sometimes it's just fear of being rejected. Fear of saying the wrong thing. We need to be driven by love and not by fear. We need to allow our love for the world around us to make the gospel something that we are talking about day by day. People can't be brought to the Lord day by day if we aren't teaching the gospel day by day. In Acts chapter 8, we see that this is not just something that characterized the apostles. Uh, This characterized the entire New Testament church. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Persecution is coming. But everywhere that the Christians go, not just the apostles, not just the evangelists, everywhere the Christians go, they're taking God's word with them. They are proclaiming, they are preaching, they are sharing the word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, we're we're asked some rhetorical questions. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are people going to be brought to the Lord day by day unless somebody is telling them about the Lord? Unless somebody is taking the scriptures and sharing it with them? 
And you notice he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Uh, this, this connects with the idea in Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How many Christians need that part of the armor? Oh, uh, just, just the evangelists. Just, just, you know, those who are full-time working in that. No. That's part of the armor that each and every one of us needs. And, and have you thought about why he says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? Why doesn't he say how beautiful are the mouths? Why, why the feet? I think sometimes when we think about sharing the gospel with other people, we think, well, well we, we need to, to be eloquent. We need to be, uh, you know, well-trained in speaking and telling other people about these things. You know, God doesn't need your charismatic personality to accomplish his purpose. God doesn't need your, your impressive rhetorical skills. God simply needs somebody who is faithful in taking his message to the world. We're, we're heralds of the king. That's really this idea of preacher is being a herald of the king. You know, when, when the king had a proclamation that he wanted the community to hear, did he need somebody who could you know, compose a really well-executed uh, oratory performance? No, he needed somebody who would faithfully read the message and read it out loud to the people. That's our job, is to take the message to the community around us. If, you know, if nothing else, we need to invite our neighbor to, to sit down and read the Bible with us. That's where the power is. I don't need to be able to explain everything. I need to get them in contact with God in his word. I need to be inviting people to come in and see what God is doing among his people. To hear the word preached. I need to be working day by day that others might come in contact with the gospel. Are we following the pattern of the New Testament church? Let me, let me ask a challenging question. If the gospel was first preached here in Pittsburgh instead of in Jerusalem, and this church was the first congregation of Christians that ever existed, how far would the gospel go? Brethren, we need to get to work. It's convicting to think about the, the tremendous work that God has entrusted to our hands. But if we want to be following the pattern of the New Testament church, we need to get the gospel outside of these four walls. We need to day by day be active in telling our friends, telling our neighbors about God's word. Invite them to sit down and read the Bible with you. Invite them to come here and study it with us. Let's be fully devoted to every aspect of God's work. Are we following the pattern of the New Testament church? You know, we may be going through all the right motions. Our organization, our, our worship, our, our work may be according to the scriptural pattern. And those are certainly important things. I don't want to minimize the importance of that. Brethren, if we want to be the New Testament church, we need the heart of the New Testament church. We need to have an atmosphere of devotion 
of reverence. We need fellowship and service and love towards one another. And we need to be shining the light of joy and peace and hope that people might be brought in contact ultimately with the word of God, with the gospel. Let each of us resolve to reflect this character in our lives. Because if this church is going to be the church that we see in the New Testament, that means I'm going to need to be the kind of disciple that Jesus describes in the New Testament. What about you today? Do you recognize that there's some area that you haven't been fully devoting your life to the Lord? That there's some change that needs to be made? Maybe there's a sin of a public nature that you need to confess to these brethren and ask for their support, ask for their prayers as you seek to make that right. By God's grace, you can be forgiven. By God's grace, you can be transformed. And that's why we're here, to support and encourage one another in our service to him. And if you've never committed your life to the Lord, if you don't have that joy and that peace that surpasses understanding that we were talking about, by God's grace, you can have it today. You can surrender your life to him, no longer to live for self, to bury the old man of sin and the waters of baptism. You can be raised to walk in newness of life. If we can help you in any way in your service to the Lord today, won't you please make that known by coming forward as we stand and sing together?